Our topic for this series, it'll be the next three weeks after today, um, is American Dreams and Gospel Promises. And there are a lot of things that uh, the Bible doesn't tell us about how one thinks about one's country, one's collective national identity. National identity, the way we think of it, is really a fairly modern invention. Prior to about 300 years ago, 200 to 300 years ago, uh, there were not nations the way we think of them. There were kingdoms, there were empires, there were uh, ethnic groups, um, but the whole notion of the nation-state as we think of it is really pretty much an invention of, well, gee, the United States of America and France through the French Revolution and then uh, Germany in the mid to late 19th century. And it has moved on around the globe since then. Some would say that we still have a mix of nation states and kingdoms and empires and ethnic conclaves. Uh, that The nation state isn't even necessarily what all 167 member states of the UN or every country in the world is. But it's what we live with. We live with a nation um, that was very intentionally constituted in the late 18th century and that has over time been envisioned in different ways. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about the American dreams of the title. As I say, Scripture isn't really very, it's not specific at all about nation states and how to think about them. But there are a number of things where God, where the Scripture talks about God and the people, the people as a collective, the people as a community. And so we can take a look at how Scripture generally and the gospel as the core message of the Scriptures um, talks about the dynamics among a national collective and God and others who might not be part of that national collective. So let's see how clear and unambiguous Scripture is about this to get started. I have a number of quotations here that I've pulled from various sources, and we'll just run through them, and you can tell me what the clear, unambiguous theme and message is of how God thinks about national communities. God says, I'll seek out my sheep. I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them. I will be the shepherd of my sheep. Or, God also said, and God also has said, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. An adversary shall surround the land and strip you of your defense and your strongholds shall be plundered. Sell all that you have and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake, for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. 
houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds the people from this time on and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, so that the righteous might not stretch out their hands to do wrong. This is all becoming clear and unambiguous and obvious, right? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. You know the, this passage. Just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. To all those who have, more will be given and they will have in abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done. Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and God's glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. When we turn to our scriptural tradition about this topic... There is this broad range of perspectives, of resources, of Christian heritage on which we can draw to talk about God's relationship to a people and a national grouping. Obviously, one of the things we can do is to look at the Scripture and to the best of our ability, recreate, trying to understand what the historical context is, what the literary references are, etc., etc. And that might clear up some of it, but at that point we're also rebuilding a context, all of which is not entirely clear to us, and we're still left with a notion of what exactly is it that makes a view of a nation Christian? And that's a tough one. In many ways, it's easier, I would suggest, and perhaps more constructive to ask, as a Christian, what's your view of humanity? Or in one of these passages, what's the view of human beings in this passage? What is your view as a Christian of who God is? What do these passages imply or suggest or assume about who God is? And as a Christian, what do we think of others? And how do these passages reflect the place of others in our understanding of a national group? When you say a Christian view of X, a fundamental question is, which 
Christian. Which Christian? Uh, Christian, as an adjective, really best describes people. It doesn't best describe either ideas or ethics or politics or policies. Christian actually might best be eliminated from our vocabulary as an adjective and only kept as a noun. I am a Christian. I pray that I am a Christian. I strive to be a Christian. I am in communion with other people who are Christians. Those are nouns. They name people who hold ideas, who have ethics, who have views of humanity and God and others. But as you point out, it's not all one way among us who are Christians. So as we think about this idea of gospel promises, one of the things to recognize is that we come into our study together, we come into our conversation with different understandings of what the gospel is and what it promises. It's on the one side of our topic. On the other side of our topic, I would point to a quotation from Sarah Churchwell in her 2018 book, Behold America, which is about the America First movement and American dream as a phrase. And Churchwell, in introducing herself, her book, says, the American dream isn't dead. We just have no idea what it means anymore. And I would actually edit or adjust what she says, because I think lots of people know what the American dream means. They know what it means for them. What we don't have at this point is a broad consensus within our communities about what the American dream means. And while we can say that we had that broad consensus perhaps 25 or 50 or 100 years ago, one of the things that we've come to realize in recent decades is that even that consensus that we think we had was not a consensus that worked for everybody in the nation. And it pretty systematically excluded certain groups within the nation. And so the notion even that we did have that consensus has been challenged. And then that leaves us at this point in our life together as a political community, as a national community, and as Christians participating in that, challenged by the question, how do we form such a consensus again? I dare say any one of us participating today could give multiple examples of ways not to build consensus. We're drowning in those examples. But how do we go about approaching consensus or trying to have the conversation that at least might lead us there? I hope over the course of this series that that's something of what we can move toward. Um, not so much by building the consensus and saying this is it, but precisely by talking about how is it that we as Christians, nouns, people, 
work together within our national community in order to seek to achieve an American dream that collectively serves the whole nation. That's the introduction. As we move into this, I want to take a look initially at one particular image, and this is what we'll focus on today, that um, we can probably recognize as a fairly widely understood, recognized um, image of what might be considered the American dream. So here's the quote. We must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. This image of a city on a hill. It was John Winthrop in 1630 who coined the phrase, or actually he didn't coin it, he also was quoting somebody. Um, John Winthrop, who was about to set out on the Arabella, a leaky little wooden boat, uh, with a small band of people from England who were about to settle Boston in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and Winthrop became the governor of that colony. And before they left, he penned a sermon entitled, A Model of Christian Charity. And it is from that sermon that this phrase, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill, emerges as something of an aspiration. What will our new settlement in this old, very old place uh, come to be? And Ronald Reagan, in 1989, as he was leaving the White House, used the phrase um, from John Winthrop and uh, used it to describe the America over which or in which he had been president for the previous eight years. But as I say, Winthrop did not coin the phrase. So the next question is, what scripture does it echo? One of the things I would point out is that as we work with images like this, wherever they start, one of the things that tends to happen to this kind of image is that it attracts characteristics from different places within Scripture. And so, while Winthrop is very clear that he is citing the Matthew 5 text, you are the light of the world, a city built on a hill cannot be hid, the idea that this is somehow the city of God, or that this is somehow God's holy hill, or that this is a glorious city to which nations will stream. All of these elements of a city on a hill tend in our thinking and in our reflection on it to sort of accumulate around that core image. But it is, in fact, by Winthrop's own acknowledgement, the Matthew 5 text. So what's the larger context in Matthew? Well, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying, we've just read through the Beatitudes about all the ways in which you are blessed. 
And Jesus goes on in Matthew's record of that sermon to say, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's Matthew's presentation of this idea of the city on the hill. This is John Winthrop's sermon. Just before the conclusion, he says, a city on a hill. This is where it arises. This is where he uses this image. And how does he get there to give us an idea of what he means by using it. Let's go back to the beginning. And first of all, let's take note of the fact that Winthrop is leading a band of people who are coming to North America in order to settle Boston. This is not the origins of European settlement in North America. Jamestown was 21 years before. The pilgrims had arrived uh, in Plymouth uh, 10 years before. Um, there were other settlements that were going on. Lord only knows how long a pre prior the Vikings had been drying their haddock catches from the North Atlantic on the shores of Newfoundland. Um, but this is a new venture for Winthrop and his people. And so as they are embarking on this, what he is doing is offering them a picture of what it's going to take in order for us to succeed at this venture. Who must we be as this new settlement in the land to which we're going? Interesting that he titles his advice in that regard a model of Christian charity. Care, concern. He starts out by saying that God created humanity with a necessary diversity, and one of his key reasons for that is in order to create mutual interdependence among people. If everybody were identical, we would not need mutual interdependence. We could each pursue our own life, our own way, quite independently, he suggests. But it's because we're different that we need mutual interdependence and that that's actually God's purpose in creating people with different stations in life, different abilities, uh, different uh, degrees of wealth or poverty, etc., etc., he says, the relationships among us in our difference are shaped by justice and mercy, and they're governed by both a moral law and the gospel. And the moral law is summed up in the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, 
do unto others as you would have them do to you. He interchanges those pretty uh, thoroughly. The moral law which governs our communal relations is summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. He's very clear that neighbor love under the gospel applies to all people, even enemies. You shall love your enemy as yourself. And it applies differently under different circumstances so that where more help is needed, more love is called for. Again, in general, the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you need more help, you want more love from other people. Not less, but more. The proper motivation for all of this is love. He points out that Paul calls it the fulfillment of the law. He also says love shapes character and habit better than reason does. In any given instance, you might recognize that you should be helping in a situation because of the circumstances. But he says if you build love into your life and your character, then you're always looking for places where you can be helpful. It becomes a habit and a characteristic of who you are. And love is the bond of perfection that holds together the body of Christ, so Christians are one body in Christ. We're, many of us are familiar with the image in 1 Corinthians 12 about you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That unity, Winthrop says, necessitates mutual feeling. If I have empathy with you, if I have a sense of unity with you, then what you feel, I also can feel and ought to feel as being part of the body. And that mutual feeling infuses the members with a solidarity of care. If I can feel what you're feeling, then I will respond to what your need is. And this is where he actually gives the greatest number of biblical examples or examples at all in his entire sermon, is to demonstrate how when there is this unity of feeling, this mutual feeling, there is a responsiveness of care with Jesus, by the apostles, by Paul, by Epaphroditus, by Phoebe, and he goes on to say, and actually by many, many people throughout the church, throughout centuries. How do we get this love? It's not natural ever since the first people. Because of the, it was natural in the garden, but because Adam and Eve chose against God, it is now the case, Winthrop says, that we are all born seeking only our own interests and well-being. That's our natural state. Go to the question of how does this text think about who people are? They're self-seeking, self-interested creatures. And only the gospel, in Winthrop's view, he is a Christian, can instill the love that overcomes that self-seeking. So what are his conclusions? Love among Christians is real, not imaginary. This is Roman 3 on the back of the page. Love among Christians is absolutely necessary. 
Love is divine. It is the chief grace. It is the way in which we come closest to being like God. And it's measured in the love and the welfare of the beloved. Not in your intent, not in your self-assessment, but in what the experience of the beloved and the condition of the beloved is. Citing 1 Corinthians 13, love is not haughty, it is not proud, does not seek its own way. It is for the other. Well, it's pretty clear, I think, how it is that Winthrop builds this case and why he builds it, because he's taking a company of people to a place they've never been under what will be very harsh conditions, and he's trying to build a community that's going to be sustained and thrive and, and succeed. So he applies it to their situation. He says, we're a company of Christians, and what we mutually undertake now is to find a place with proper civil and church governance where public good will always outweigh private interests. Why? Because that's what Jesus and God have told us all along, is what our life ought to be like. But also because, he says, private interests cannot thrive where there is no public good. So public good will always outweigh private interests. And he says, God will not bear with failings. How is it that they could fail? The end of item E in bold. Neglect through pursuing carnal intentions and seeking great things for ourselves and our posterity will bring God's wrath. Going back to that now natural state of self-interest and self-seeking. And then he says, so how do we avoid this shipwreck? I think it's great. He's about to get on this leaky wooden boat and cross the North Atlantic. And, how, and the shipwreck he envisions is not the boat. It's what happens in the community on the other side. His general counsel, follow Micah 6.8, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And what does that look like? We will be knit together as one with familial affection, curtailing luxuries, our own luxuries, for the sake of others' needs, maintaining peaceful relations with mutual feeling and active solidarity. The result will be, we'll be united in peace. God will dwell with us and bless us. And here it comes. You've been waiting for it. We will become an, a positive example or a negative example. Why? Because a city built on a hill cannot be hid. And if we fail, God will withdraw support we will become a byword among the nations. We will give enemies reason to malign God, to speak ill of God. We will shame God's worthy servants, unlike we unworthy servants. And we will be cursed and perish from the land. That's what it is to be a city on a hill. It's to become either positive or negative negative example. 
And so he concludes with Moses' exhortation to the Israelites headed into their new place. Be faithful, serve God, and choose life, or you will perish from the land. Who wants to sign up for the city on the hill? That helps us see how Winthrop used this phrase at its origin um, in 1630, after we saw it at its first origin in Matthew. Um, when does it next show up in American literature or history? The phrase actually comes into general usage in American life. Actually, it appears for the first time that anybody can identify after the sermon. It appears in the writings of a Harvard historian in the early 1950s, a fellow by the name of 1950s. You got that? 320-some years later. 1950s, Cold War America. And Perry Miller, Harvard historian, his philosophy professor at Harvard, George Santayana, credited Miller with being one of the two most brilliant students he ever had. The other one was T.S. Eliot. Perry Miller became a Harvard historian himself and actually a specialist in New England colonial history. And as he sought to write a book about the American experiment, the American nation, who this country is, he knew the history of the beginnings, but what he needed was the articulation of what this country would be from its beginning. And he went back and found Winthrop's sermon and said, a city on a hill, that's what has been the theme throughout America's development, founding and development, is how to be this city on a hill. And Abram van Engen, um, who has written the story of Miller's discovery and promulgation of this um, as part of his book published last year titles his book City on a Hill A History of American Exceptionalism but it's the 1950s when this phrase comes into the general awareness interestingly by 1979 how many of you took your English comp course or high school AP English and you use the famous Norton Anthology of English Literature. Great two-volume work, right? Assume, well, by 1979, I won't ask for how many people that was their Norton Anthology or not. wasn't mine. But by 1979, what was the first text in the Norton Anthology of, of American Literature? How did American literature start for everybody who studied it there? John Winthrop's sermon. It became de definitive of where American literature started. And so this picture of the city on a hill emerges. Now, interestingly, while it took until the 50s for it to be rediscovered and canonized as the articulation of an American dream, every U.S. president, starting with John F. Kennedy, has quoted it. Um, there are two exceptions. I think Gerald Ford, who was, after all, only in office for, what, a year and a half or so, 
Um, and um, I don't think Joe Biden has used it yet. But every other American president, starting with John Kennedy, has used it. And it's fascinating to see how it has been used variously. So if we go back to Matthew, after all, no one lights a light and puts it under a bushel. You're a city on a hill. It can't be hid. Winthrop, you'll be a positive example or a negative example. The image itself can go multiple directions, right? And in fact, it has been used in both of those positive and negative directions. So John Kennedy, in his farewell to Massachusetts as he was about to go off and become president in 1961, said, I've been guided by the standard John Winthrop set before his shipmates. We must always consider, he said, that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Today, the eyes of all people are truly upon us, and our governments in every branch, at every level, national, state, and local, must be as a city upon a hill, constructed and inhabited by people aware of their great trust and their great responsibilities. For of those to whom much is given, much will be required. Kennedy picks up on this sense of the city on the hill as being what others are going to look at and therefore what we must be careful to shape in a particular way. For of those to whom much is given, much will be required. That also is biblical. And who is it who gives when much is given? Implicitly, Kennedy is saying God has given us much, and so much is required of us, and the eyes of all the world are upon us to keep us focused, to remind us of our standard. 28 years later, back to where we started with who said it, Ronald Reagan, as he was leaving the presidency in his final address to the people of the United States in January of 89, said, the past few days I've thought a bit of the shining city on a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, except shining isn't part of Winthrop's phrase. But we saw that there are other biblical cities on hills that one might describe as shining. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life. I don't know if I've quite communicated what I saw when I said it, but in my mind it was a tall, proud city built on rocks stronger than oceans, windswept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. If there had to be city walls... The walls had doors, and doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. And she's still a beacon. I thought it was very interesting last Thursday night in the January 6th hearing when Matthew Pottinger was given a little bit of space at the end of the hearing to talk about what the threat might be to America, to national security as a result of the January 6th insurrection. 
Um, and he really waxed on about what, how he imagines America. And he said, America is a gleaming beacon. There it is. It's still very much there. The shining city, she's still a beacon. And then Reagan says, we did it. Two ways to take the city on a hill and imagine it as an American dream. Um, both, I would suggest, fairly connected to Matthew's text. Um, Kennedy's, I think, frankly, closer to Winthrop's. But after all, Kennedy was on the verge of a presidency as Winthrop was on the verge of his voyage. And Reagan is looking back. And that may make some significant difference here. Reagan says, God blesses this shining city on the hill. And Kennedy said, we have been given much, therefore much is expected. So I think both of them have God in view in one way or another. It's not entirely our project. Although Kennedy says, I understand that on earth God's will is done by people. Um, so there, you know, but let's recognize too, Winthrop is early 17th century in England as a persecuted Christian minority in a, in, a in a country with an established Christian church. So he's working in a completely Christian environment um, in which the Church of England is the group that's persecuting his community and sending them to try a different project. Um, by the time we get to the 20th century presidents, we have a couple of hundred years of American constitutional separation of church and state, where you can't talk about a state religion. You can't say America must be Christian. Can Christians participate fully in American government and are they afforded all of the rights of anybody else in America? Absolutely. But constitutionally, and we'll take a look at this in the series as well, um, constitutionally, Christianity is not the religion of America. And so a president speaking in that context is going to have to speak differently from the governor, the, the emerging governor of a Christian colony leaving a Christian state church that is persecuting them and trying to establish a Christian community. At the same time, Winthrop is very clear that this standard of love, this, this justice and mercy motivated by love, applies to all people. Certainly, he says, among us as Christians, but it applies to all people. So even there, he's already recognizing a broader swath of humanity. Well, friends, thank you much. I hope this has been an intriguing and stimulating um, and somewhat insightful introduction to thinking about American dreams and gospel promises and uh, where we might go with all of this. Um, I'm looking forward to it, and I look forward to being back together with you. Thank you much.